Welcome to episode 11 of the Idea Blog podcast on the Criminal Code of Canada. This is a long holiday listen on section 8 and section 9 of the Criminal Code entitled Codification versus Common Law. Is the Criminal Code big enough? Codification can be a good thing. Instead of searching multiple statutes to find the criminal offense for which your client is charged, as an English barrister must do, the Canadian lawyer just flips through the weighty but convenient criminal code. To be fair to England, they did try to codify their criminal law. In fact, our codified criminal law comes from that English attempt by Sir James Fitzjames Stephen. I say the English attempt, as even though we Canadians embrace the codification concept, the English Parliament did not. For more information on the history of the Criminal Code and possible reform, I invite you to read my previous blog on the subject entitled The Criminal Code of Canada, Codification and Reform from February 12, 2012. And again, the site for Idea Blog is www.ideablog.ca. Codification can therefore provide much needed certainty of the law. There's no guesswork with codification. We know it is a crime because the code says so. Thus, the concept of ignorance of the law is no excuse from that Latin maxim of ignorantia juris non excusat is crystallized in a compendium of sections of the criminal code and even is codified in it, as we will see when we discuss section 19 of the code. Alas, however, this same reasoning can lead to the conclusion that codification can also be a bad thing. Firstly, codification leaves little room for interpretation. The criminal code, as a really, really long statute, abides by the rules of statutory interpretation, which guides us on the application and meaning of the statute. According to another Latin maxim, but this time of statutory interpretation, expressio unius est exclusio alterius, or expression of one is the exclusion of the other, means that what is not written in the criminal code is not part of the criminal code. This principle is supported by other statutory interpretation rules, such as the plain meaning rule of statutory interpretation, which advises us that the words used in the criminal code mean what they ordinarily mean. These rules have not gone unchallenged, and there are interesting articles discussing those issues. And again, if you go to the text version of this podcast and click on some of those hyperlinks, you will get a wealth of information. For instance, the rule raises the question as to whether or not there truly is an ordinary meaning of a word when considering the differing cultures and perceptions of our multicultural nation. Besides critics of these statutory interpretation concepts, there are other rules of interpretation which seem contrary to these closed book rules, such as the ability of the court to read in words or phrases to a statute to ensure its constitutional integrity. To be sure, courts through the ages have read in phrases and meanings in certain sections of the code, but they have not actually read in a whole section. Thus, through the effect of codification, the criminal code captures and defines our criminal law, leaving very little room, if any, for change unless Parliament so chooses. In this way, the dynamic nature of society is not reflected through our laws. Certainly, 
However, our charter has added a fluid dimension to the criminal code by superimposing societal change, albeit incrementally, onto the written word. Instead of a closed book, the code seems to be more akin to an e-reader in which the internet can be accessed on occasion to elucidate the reader. The second problem with codification is the isolation of the criminal law from the English criminal criminal common law tradition, which brings with it a rich and varied criminal law. Using another metaphor, codification is like a tree without its roots, as common law is an important source of our criminal law. However, the whole purpose of codification would be defeated by the uncertainty caused by permitting the common law to exist outside of codification. How would an accused then know the charge for which he or she was facing without reference to a specific charge found in the code if unwritten common law could still form the basis of a charge? This last objection to permitting the common law to stand as a system parallel to the criminal code is also reflected in our charter as a principle of fundamental justice under section 11a wherein a person charged with a criminal offense has a right to be informed of this specific offense without delay. Thankfully, the framers of the code did think of these issues, and so we finally come to the sections which we will discuss in this podcast, sections 8 and 9 of the Criminal Code. But first we will look at section 9, which restricts the common law and ensures Canadian criminal law is consistent with the Charter. Section 9, under the heading Criminal Offenses to be under Law of Canada, reads as follows. Notwithstanding anything in this Act or any where... In the Act, no person shall be convicted or discharged under Section 730 of an offence at common law, of an offence under an Act of Parliament of Canada or of Great Britain, or of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland, or of an offence under an Act or Ordinance in force in any province, territory, or place before that province, territory, or place became a province of Canada but nothing in this section affects the power, jurisdiction, or authority that a court, judge, justice, or provincial court judge had immediately before April 1955 to impose punishment for contempt of court. This section is actually an enabling section as it ensures that the criminal code has full force and effect in Canada and that no one can be convicted or discharged with an offence other than an offence under the code. This was needed as prior to codification, the sources of law were varied and included laws in the United Kingdom, laws particular to pre-Confederation governments, and laws arising from common law. It is interesting to note that the section bars punishment for these offenses, as opposed to prohibiting a person from being charged for these offenses. I would suggest that the word charged, as under Section 11 of the Charter, refers to the laying of an information against an accused, an action which comes at the beginning of the criminal process as opposed to conviction, which comes at the end. Thus, the protection of this section is triggered at the end of the trial process when an accused is found guilty by the trial judge and a conviction is about to be entered. The triggering words are similar to the ERTSATs, and please see my previous podcast and blog, where I explain why I use this qualifying adjective. So the triggering words are similar to the ERTSAT's presumption of innocence found under Section 6 of the Code. In effect, then, someone may be arrested, charged, and tried for an offence under Section 9, and even found guilty. 
but it is the judicial action after the finding of guilt and immediately before a conviction or discharge is entered, which Section 9 prohibits. As in Section 6, the focus is on punishment and is unlike the Charter Sections on Legal Rights, which so assiduously protect the accused throughout the criminal process, from detention to arrest to charges to pretrial custody to trial and then to acquittal or, as in Section 9, then to conviction and thereby punishment. Of note is Section 11G of the Charter that gives a person charged with a criminal offence the right not to be found guilty on account of any act or omission unless at the time of the act or omission it constitutes an offence under Canadian or international law or was criminal according to the general principles of law recognized by the community of nations. This section seems to parallel Section 9, but it may be interpreted as giving a broader protection by using the phrase not found guilty and therefore protects an individual before a finding of guilt is made. After the trial judge makes a finding of guilt, the accused is not convicted, as he or she may be discharged under Section 730 of the Code. Although a discharge is not a conviction, and therefore the accused does not have a criminal record, it is a sentence or punishment under the Code. This does seem to be a question of semantics, yet an interesting one to ponder. There is, however, an exclusion to this decree, as the section permits a court to impose punishment for contempt of court. Thus, Section 9C preserves the court's inherent and essential jurisdiction to cite and punish someone appearing before it for the common law offense of contempt of court. The purpose of preserving this power, according to Justice McIntyre speaking for the Supreme Court of Canada in the Vermette case, was, quote, necessary and remains so to enable the orderly conduct of the court's business and to prevent interference with the court's proceedings, end quote. However, the jurisdiction of the inferior court or provincial court differed from the inherent powers of the superior courts. While the provincial court could only cite someone for common law contempt where the actus reus or contemptuous conduct occurred in the face of or in the presence of the court, the superior court could also use their contempt power in circumstances where the conduct was outside of the court or ex facia. This was due to the inherent jurisdiction of the superior courts to maintain discipline within their courts independent of statute, as opposed to the provincial or inferior courts whose jurisdiction was purely statutory. This common law power is still used in courts today, albeit sparingly, and is available even though there are perfectly appropriate charging sections in the criminal code, such as Section 139, Obstruct Justice, and Section 131, Perjury. I have represented an individual for common law contempt, and the unique aspect of the offense is the ability of the accused to proffer an explanation or an apology for the contemptuous behavior that may be accepted as purging the contempt charge. I say may, as the apology may negate the mens rea required for conviction, but a judge is certainly not required to accept such an apology as vacating the contempt finding. Let's now return to the second section to be discussed today, Section 8. We saw how Parliament ensured that the Criminal Code would safeguard and accuse rights by limiting criminal law offences, and now Section 8 extends this protection by permitting some common law principles which inure to the benefit of the accused, such as common law defences. 
In particular, I will read Section 8, Subsection 3. Every rule and principle of the common law that renders any circumstance a justification or excuse for an act or a defense to a charge continues in force and applies in respect to proceedings for an offense under this act or any other act of Parliament except insofar as they are altered by or are inconsistent with this act or any other act of Parliament. Therefore, all common law defenses, unless they are altered by or are inconsistent with the code, are available to an accused. The defenses specified by the section are justification and excuses, which are complete defenses to a criminal charge, but apply even though both the actus reus and mens rea of an offense are proven. Although both of these defenses are restricted to a reasonable response by the accused to external pressures, they do differ. An excuse acknowledges the wrongfulness of the action, but holds that the accused would not be punished for his or her actions, as Justice Diction Dixon stated in the Perka case, a liberal and humane criminal law cannot hold people to the strict obedience of the laws in an emergency situation. Examples of an excuse would be the defense of duress, as in the Paquette case, and the defense of necessity, as in the Perka case. Conversely, a justification is where the accused challenges the wrongfulness of the act, as in the circumstances where, quote, the values of society, indeed the criminal law itself, are promoted by disobeying the law than observing it, end quote. For a further discussion on the present law on excuses, see my previous blog on duress and the Supreme Court of Canada Ryan case entitled Not to Make Excuses but the Unresponsiveness of the Supreme Court of Canada to the Defense of Duress. Returning to the exception in the section which suggests that if the common law defenses alter or are inconsistent with codified defenses, then the codified versions prevail, we must consider the defense of duress as codified under Section 17. As we will discuss when we arrive at Section 17, both the common law defense of duress and the Section 17 duress are available to certain accused in certain circumstances. We will see that far from the caution that the common law defense where altered or inconsistent cannot stand in the face of the codified defense, the common law defense of duress has actually altered the codified version as a result of the application of the charter. But we will come to this in due course. Of course, there is a world of common law defenses outside of the code and outside the rubric of justification and excuses, such as the common law defense of mistake of fact and the common law defense of mistake of law. Both defenses, well, mistake of fact is used much more often than mistake of law for obvious reasons, as we will see when we come to section 19, but certainly the defense of mistake of fact is used consistently and really across the board of criminal law. Certainly the common law defense mistake of law has been altered. Certainly the common law defense of mistake of fact, not mistake of law, but mistake of fact has been altered for sexual assault offenses pursuant to section 273.2. There are other common law defenses which sadly are sorely underused, such as the de minimis defense or the defense that the law does not consider trifling breaches of the law. These common law defenses receive short shrift, in my view, due to the advent of the Charter and the subsequent Charter-weaned lawyers 
who believe charter rights are the only kind of defense worth pursuing. Finally, just as a note on the just a note on the legislative histories of these two sections, section 8 and please try and follow me cuz this is really confusing. Section 8 actually was our present section 9 and our present section 9 was the then section 7 until section 6 was reenacted as the present section 7. Do you have that straight? Section 7, as you may recall in the previous podcast, involves offenses on aircraft and offenses occurring outside of Canada. Our present Section 9 was enacted as Section 8 in the 1953-54 Code Amendments. The reversal occurred in the revisions under the 1985 Code when Section 8 became Section 9. To make matters even more confusing, Section 8 was present in our original Criminal Code of 1892 under the then Section 7 and Section 983. In 1906, the sections were combined and reenacted as Sections 9 to 12. And in fact, our present-day Section 8 has some vestiges of these Sections 9 to 12 under Section 8 sub 1 and Section 8 sub 2. In any event, the following versions after 1906 the following revisions made to sections 9 to 12, there were a dizzying number of those changes, until finally in 1985, the 1985 revisions and reenactments of many of those sections, in fact, they renumbered the criminal code, the 1985 revisions reenacted the then section 7 to the present form of section 8. Confusing? As I have complained before in these podcasts, often the government has placed content over form by changing and adding sections to the code without consideration for placement or sense. On that historically puzzling note, I wish one and all a very happy holidays and a happy new year. This podcast will return in January 2014 as we will discuss the next section of the Criminal Code of Canada, Section 10, when we revisit the common law offense of contempt of court and the availability of appellate remedies to that offense.